So today we are in our second week of our series called Dear Church, which is exploring the letters that Jesus wrote through the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia. Now before we explore those letters, which will start next week, we're taking two weeks to look at the author of those letters, and that is Jesus Christ. Remember, as I said last week, that the purpose of Revelation is to fully understand who Christ is in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, because that is what we need the most. We do not need charts on the wall that tells us how everything is going to fall at the end of time. We don't need to understand every illustration, every symbol of Revelation. What we need to understand is who Jesus is. He is not just the baby born in the manger. He's not just the lamb that was slain or the one who rose from the dead. That he is, at the end of time, the coming king. Because when we understand who Jesus as the coming king, it changes how we see things. We start looking at our present circumstances through the lens of the future. And that brings us peace through all the different things in our life. And remember, that's what John hoped for when he, when he wrote this letter. In verse 4 last week, he said, grace to you and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And so that's what we talked about last week, that peace. This week, I want to talk about the other part of that is the grace. When he says grace to you from who is and who was and who is to come. Now to do that, we're going to study the rest of chapter 1, which is going to be verses 9 through 20. Okay, I'll have them up on the screen for you, but I always love when people open up or turn on their own Bibles because it gets them into practice. You don't have one, see back in front of you. You can take it with you if you don't own one. So here we go. I'm going to pick this up from verse, one, uh, verse 9 all the way to the end of 20. I'm going to need extra water today. Lots of talking yesterday. Here we go. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of, called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergam, Pergamum and to Thyatira, Thyatira, if I can say it, Thyatira, I can never get that one, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 12, and then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of those lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 14, and the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his hand he held seven stars from his mouth, and came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. 
Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. So John starts this section of his letter by saying, look, I've, I've been exiled to the island of Patmos by the emperor because I've been preaching the gospel and I won't stop. And he goes to say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord's day is a reference to what day of the week? Anybody? Sunday. That's right. It was Sunday in the, in the early church. The Lord's day was, uh, was on Sunday because that was the day that the Lord raised from the dead. And so they met on Sunday. And that's why churches today mostly meet on Sunday. Now, John says on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, he was in the Spirit, which most likely means that he was praying and worshiping to God, and then God started revealing things to him. And he, most, I think almost every time in the New Testament, if not every time, you see in the Spirit, it has to do with the prophetic. It has to do with God revealing himself. So what is the first thing that God reveals? These golden lampstands, which we'll talk about more next week, which were the seven churches. Now, this is a quick side note that not everything that you read in Revelation is taken literally. There are a lot of illustrations and a lot of symbolism in Revelation. So we got to be very humble when approaching this book. All right, back to topic. Now, in the midst of these lampstands, John sees Jesus, and he gives this lengthy description. He sees Jesus clothed with a long robe and a golden sash, which is a description of what a priest would have worn in the Old Testament. Remember, a priest was the mediator between God and man. Long story short. And this is pointing to that Christ is now the only mediator between God and man. The hairs on his head were white like white wool and snow, which points to his purity. His eyes were like a flame, possibly pointing to his holiness. His feet were like bronze, possibly signaling the stability and the strength that came through his death and through his resurrection. His voice was like the roar of many waters, speaking to the power and authority of his words. In his right hand were the seven stars, which were the seven angels or seven messengers. Once again, we'll talk about that next week. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which points to his power to judge and to conquer his enemies, as prophesied in Isaiah, and as you see referenced again in Revelation 19. And finally, his face was shining in full strength like the sun. What an incredible description of the Lord. How does John respond to this? Verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And I feel like this is a little hard for us to imagine because we don't really come face to face with things that overwhelm us so much that we drop to the floor as dead. As I was sitting there trying to imagine God revealing himself in such a way that I would drop to the ground in fear. 
And this is common anytime in the, in the Bible where you see God reveal himself in a way that was people's responses just drop to the floor. In a healthy fear of the Lord. And, and I, I think this is a problem today in the church. We don't fear God enough. We don't fear him enough. We see him as the, we see Jesus as the lamb that was slain, as the good teacher of God's truth, but we forget to envision him as he is displayed in Revelation. We take his grace and his patience for granted because we've lost our fear of the Lord. We fear far too many other things, like our circumstances or what other people think, but we do not fear the Alpha and Omega far enough. Scripture teaches, though, that there will come a day, as we talked about last week, that every man and woman will stand before God, every single one of us. And I suspect that we will have the same response as John. And as we talked about last week, for those who have not submitted to Jesus as king, they will mourn when they see him. But we're not going to spend time on that today. There'll be plenty of time for that when we bust through the rest of Revelation in the new year. What I want to focus on today is how Jesus responds to John, who is prostrate on the floor. What I want you to see here, in contrast, is the greatness of God in, in how he is described by John with the gentleness of his response to John. As a powerful king, as, as John drops before him, Jesus is like, yes, fear me. Bow to me. He doesn't insult John. He doesn't demand anything of John. He makes no prideful statements of John. He does not make John come to gravel at his feet as many of the kings would have done. Of all of the responses that the most powerful king in all of the universe could have given, he does this. He leans down and he touches John on the shoulder. He comes down to John's level and he says, fear not. Fear not, John. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Church, I love that. I love that. Let me tell you why I love it. It, it. If all we read about God, about Jesus Christ in his glorified form, if, if, if all we saw was his glory and, and, and John falling at his feet, we might be afraid to approach him. We might be afraid to come to him. I think there's just holy God in the universe and I am Nothing compared to him. But Jesus reaches down and touches him. He says, you don't need to be afraid, John. As one pastor said, I don't remember his name, he said, this is one of the most remarkable moments in the Bible. Because even though Jesus' outward appearance had completely changed from when John first met him, when Jesus was alive, in his teaching time, in those three years of ministry. Even though that completely changed, Jesus looked nothing like he did on earth. 
his heart was still the same. This is beautiful. His heart was still the same. His heart to touch people. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus was always going and touching people. He would find the blind, he would touch them, and they would see. He would find the deaf, he would touch their ears, and they would hear. He would find the lame, he would touch them, and they would walk. He would go to the outcasts, to the unclean, to the people that no one would go to, and he would touch them, and they would be healed. Not only physically, but spiritually and emotionally, as he, as he would pour into people's lives that the religious people of those days would have nothing to do with. And yeah, man, this is why I love this so much. In my times as a pastor, I know that every weekend I'm preaching, I'm preaching to somebody who thinks they're untouchable. I'm preaching to somebody who thinks God does not want to reach down and touch them. Who thinks that they, they've got to become a certain level of, of good to enter, to enter God's presence. Oh, but the life of Jesus says otherwise. He says otherwise. I don't care who you think you are, who other people have told you who you are, who you aren't, what you have done, what you have not done. I don't care. There is a God who wants to reach down and touch you and tell you do not be afraid. Listen, I'll tell you right now, the only reason I can stand here and preach God's word is because he touched me. The only reason I can stand over there and I sing and put my hand in the air is because he touched me. The only reason I, I, I have hope in all circumstances is because he touched me. The only reason I have peace and have joy is because he touched me. I was even singing this morning that old, you've been in church a while, you know that old Gaither song, He Touched Me, right? The chorus goes, he touched me, he touched me. All the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me, and he made me whole. And anyone who's in here, who's put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The touch of Jesus that does not require anything on our part but faith in him, his mercy and his grace, and I'm so thankful for it every day. Are you with me, church? Jesus touches him. He says, I'm not to be afraid. And I want to and I want to give and spend a, a few minutes on the reason why John doesn't have to be afraid, because this is what gives Jesus' touch so much meaning. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. I got the keys. Now, what does that mean? Well, these terms are pretty much synonymous with death being the condition and Hades being the place. Hades uh, in the New Testament is like the Old Testament version of Sheol. It refers just to the place of the dead, right? And so what Jesus is saying, look, I have the keys to death. I have the keys. 
What does that mean? I mean, think what do keys do. What do they do? They unlock and they lock, right? So Jesus is speaking to the power over death that he has. He goes, I have the authority. I control life. I control death. And John, like all redeemed, all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, have nothing to fear. For Christ has already delivered them from death and Hades by his own death. This is why Paul writes in Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's gone. As Jesus says in John 11, because I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, does anybody know? He lived. That's right. This is why last week we saw Jesus referred to as firstborn of the dead, which is a super weird phrase, right? Firstborn of the dead. But what it means is that he is the founder and the initiator of a new era that God brings about through Jesus' victory over death. That his resurrection from the dead opens up the door for all who trust in him to also experience resurrection from the dead. Like we read in Romans 10, 9, Steph said it earlier, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I've come across some who've struggled with this. Intellectual types, not bad to have questions, and like, okay, let me, let me get this straight. God sacrificed himself solely to satisfy a rule that he created in the first place. Like, why even bother making this rule? Why, why, what, it makes no sense. I mean, think to yourself, how would you answer that if someone were to ask? Now, listen, I'll blame them for asking this because it don't make sense to us because that's not what we would do. If we make a rule that becomes too hard for us to keep, we just break it or let the rule go. Our character, our human character because of sin, is often limited or broken by compromise and by comfort. A fun example is if you've ever been a parent, have you ever given a kid a punishment and that punishment ended up punishing you more than the kid? So you're like, you know, in today's parents, you, you take away your kid's iPad from them. And then they just drive you nuts. Make sure our kids are not in here, right? They drive you crazy. And so you start trying to find secret ways to get rid of that punishment, right? Oh, you turned the light off in the bathroom when you left. Let me take four days off of your iPad ban, right? But this is what we do. Any rule that we make in our lives, if it inconveniences us enough, we break it. But God does not have the same character as we do. He is true to his character where we are true to our comfort. You see, if God is holy, if he is without sin, if he is set apart from all creation, he can't decide one day in one area not to be holy and still remain holy. Either he is holy or he is not holy. We love the gray. We love the gray. We love the middle ground. God says, no, I am holy, so I must be holy all the time. So for sin to equal death, then it must always equal death without exception. 
or he is not holy. God cannot just set aside his judgment for sin any more than we can change our DNA. God's justice, it's it's not like a guideline that he just chooses to follow. Justice is a part of his very nature and character. Without wrath for sin and judgment, he is not God. Which makes sense. I've said this many times. None of us would let people into our house, into our home, who we knew were not going to obey our authority and who were not going to be best for our family. If they were going to do what they want and destroy their, our home, we would not let them in. And yet we get angry for not letting everyone into heaven, like everybody should go. God is not just if he allows evil to continue forever. He must bring justice, but he must bring it across the board. Some of you read the book, probably if you've seen the movie. I, I quote this movie and book a lot because I love it. It's a great metaphor of Christianity. It's the lion, the witch, and the, the wardrobe. And there's this conversation takes place between Aslan, who is a, a metaphor for Jesus, who is a mighty lion, takes a place between him and the white witch, who is a metaphor for the de devil, the deceiver. And what happened is the white witch deceived this human poor human boy named Edmund. You might remember with Turkish delights, which I still want to eat one because I have no idea what they taste like. So Edmund, he ended up giving her information. He ended up becoming a traitor to Aslan and the cause. And in the same way, when we sin against God, when we ignore his authority, we become a traitor against God. And, and this is the conversation that takes place as the White Watch approaches Aslan. She says, Aslan, Aslan, you have a traitor in your midst. Speaking of Edmund. And Aslan's like, his offense is not against you. The white witch goes, have you forgotten the deep magic? And one of my favorite quotes from the Bible, Aslan replies, do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. <laughs> I was there when it was made. And she goes, then you know that the boy belongs to me. That boy deserves to die. And then Peter, Edmund's older brother, is like, all right, witch, come and take him then. Bring it on. We'll fight you. And the white witch is like, you think your simple threat is going to deny me my right. Aslan knows that if we do not have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. Aslan goes, that's enough, witch. I will talk to you alone. And if you've seen the movie or read the book, you know what he does. He goes off and he meets with the witch and he says, listen, I will give my life for Edmund. I will die in his place. And, 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 and the White Witch loves this because Aslan's a much greater catch. If, if Aslan dies, then the kingdom fails, and it's all hers. But then we know what happens. He dies, and then sometime later, much to the White Witch's surprise, Aslan is reborn. He raises from the dead, gaining the keys to death and life. It's a great book. It's a great movie if you've read or seen it. And Christianity teaches the same thing, that in the way that God gave his life for us and provided a way for justice to be satisfied and salvation to be extended. 
Rather than trying to break his holiness to violate who he is, he said, I will suffer. He sent his son, his son who went willingly, as we read in Philippians and Ephesians. Famous verse, it's football season, right? John 3, 16, that God for slow loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then much to the devil's surprise, Jesus rose again three days later. God's like, you forgot to read the fine print. You, had, you know the devil was surprised because if the devil was surprised, he would have been trying to keep Jesus alive the whole time. Because of this, the penalty of sin was satisfied through Christ's sacrifice, that he can extend his mercy to undeserving sinners, sinners like you and, and like me, by faith. And do you know what it's called when you give something to somebody who does not deserve it? It's grace. It's grace. For by grace you have been saved, as we read in Ephesians you know, one of the things that surprises me today is that when people say that Christianity is judgmental, as if everyone else in the world wasn't judgmental, I'll meet people and they're like, well, I'm not a judgmental person. I let people live their lives and do what they want. And I, you know, and I always pose the question, I'm like, do you know why you're not judgmental? Because it hasn't affected your life yet. It doesn't mess with your way of life, the way that you live. But I guarantee you, the moment that the thing that you're not judgmental about starts to affect your happiness and your comfort, you're going to see how quickly you become judgmental. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being judgmental. Completely misunderstanding the context of the Bible. We should make judgments. In fact, everybody makes judgments. We do it all the time. In fact, when someone says Christianity is judgmental, they're making a judgment. We all do it. What we're not supposed to do is make a judgment that condemns somebody. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Don't you judge other people. That's God's job. Do not condemn other people. That's God's job. Doesn't mean you can't point out the truth to them. That God is the author of life and death. He was getting on the Pharisees' case when he did this. In fact, later he says, judge with right judgment. And so Christianity makes judgments. And he says there will be a judge. And it's God's right and duty to judge. But unlike the judgment we see in this world, the cancel culture, or even us, where we don't like to talk about it, but we, we make judgments all the time, where when we don't like somebody, we'll kick them out of our lives. We don't like somebody, or like a church, we'll leave it. We don't like somebody, we'll shut off emotionally, we won't engage with anyone. We make judgments, and we carry out these judgments all the time. Unlike that, unlike us, God offers grace to the people that he judges. He says, yeah, I've judged you. I have condemned you, but I have also provided a way for you to be saved because of my grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, two favorite verses in the words in the Bible, but God. Just after talking, Paul talked about how you guys were all doomed in your sin. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. I hope you are thankful for God's grace this morning. His undeserved gift of salvation. You know, and, and this reminds me, I want to encourage you, we should never 
And I'm speaking to Christians right now. We need to stop minimizing sin in our lives. It is our tendency in this feel-good day and age where we want to get everybody to feel safe and to come to church that we minimize the severity of sin and its effects. We want to talk lightly about sin. The problem is, as one pastor said, that whenever we minimize sin, we end up minimizing the cross. Because if sin is just an oops, if it's just a mistake, then what big a deal is the cross? We end up minimizing God's grace. We want, if we want people to see how lovely the cross is, they must understand how deadly sin is. But we don't stop there. We, we don't stop there because some of us, we do love talking about hellfire and brimstone a lot. But we also must talk about our thankfulness for God's faithfulness in his grace, our gratitude. Because sin isn't the end of the story, as we just talked about. We need to talk about his grace in our lives and where he has brought us from and what he is doing in our lives. His grace that continues till the day that we die. His grace that changed our position from someone prostrate uh, as sinful before the king of the universe. All because of his love. Remember last week, I don't have it up on the, the screen, but I'll read it for you. Revelation 1.5 read this. It said, to him, speaking of Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see that? Why he does this? Because of his love. He does this because of his love. That's what makes God's grace even more awesome. It's not because we did something which so many people teach and it irritates me to no end. It's his love that has saved us. He doesn't and this goes to the very feel-good church right now, all these celebrity pre preachers who are telling you how awesome you are. No, no. God does not love you because you are valuable. Hear this. You're valuable because he loves you. Your value comes from the fact that he loves you. Not all that you have achieved, not about your greatness, not how good you are, your value comes from the fact that there is a God in heaven who loves and wants to save you. And I, if we could grasp this concept in our lives, all the lies that the enemy tells us when we look in the mirror would be gone. You cannot make yourself lovable. You are going to go on a fruitless mission in your life if your goal is to get somehow good enough. Sometimes we get the idea if we can just work hard, we can clean ourselves up. But this passage says that he loves you. And because he loves you, he has freed you if you put your faith in him, if you look to him. You know, in another version says, it says, uh, I think the New King James says he washed us. Same root Greek word. He washed us. And I was thinking, I was thinking about Ella last night. Remember she was eating yogurt? She had just yogurt, you know, toddlers everywhere. Just like, ah, laughing, just everywhere. And you're just praying she just doesn't throw it on the floor. Well, when Maria goes to wipe up her face, she doesn't go up to wipe up Ella's face, so then she's, Ella's presentable. 
and then she'll love her because she's clean. Because she loves her, she goes and wipes up her face. And in the same way, when we look to God, because he loves us, he frees us. Because he loves us, he washes us clean. I'll tell you right now, as cheesy as it may sound, God's detergent is the blessed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was spread upon that cross. And, and, And he doesn't just love us to save us and to wash us and to clean us. It says in verse 6, he made us into a kingdom. He made us into priests. He says, John, do not be afraid. You are a part of my kingdom. You are a priest. You are a son or daughter of the king. You know what it means to be a priest? Okay, it doesn't mean to stand up and have mass in some church and feed people communion. What it means to be a priest. In fact, this is news class. It tells us in, in, in 2 Peter, every Christian, every single, I don't care you wear a robe, you don't wear a robe, you preach, you don't preach, don't matter. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a priest. What that means is that you have direct connection to God. You don't need anybody else to go to God for you, right? You don't need anybody else. You don't need to ask anybody else. You don't need to pray to anybody else. You can sit there and approach the throne of your Father in heaven, just you and him. Man, we let this thought just go out. We, we forget about it. We become dull to it. But you literally, at any moment, at any time, in any place, in any situation, no matter, no matter what the condition, you can close your eyes. Or if you're driving, keep them open. Either way, you can talk to the Almighty. The one who has eyes, eyes like flames has a sword coming out of their mouth. That's so cool. And I'm often thinking, God, don't, don't let me forget this. Don't let me grow numb to this. Don't let me grow ap- apathetic to this truth. And there's some of us that need to hear this because we are not living our lives like sons or daughters of the king of the universe. Charles Spurgeon, he said there was one time he was visiting an elderly woman in an in, in, in almshouse. That's where you were going if you were poor. And he said that his attention was drawn to a framed document on the wall of her room. It's a true story. And he asked her about it. And she said that years before, she had cared for an elderly man. And that before he died, he wrote her this little note of appreciation to say and thank you. And he signed it with his signature. And then, she, and then he died. And so Spurgeon knew there was something more to this paper, and so he like, can I take this with me? And he said after much persuasion, she let him borrow it. And when he took it to the bank, the bank officer said, this is so wonderful. We have been wondering for years who this man left his money to. And it was more than enough money to get her out of the almshouse, to get her own home, that she didn't have to live in poverty anymore. She was a wealthy woman. She didn't know it. She was still living in poverty. And listen, some of you here today, you are still living in poverty, even though you're a son or a daughter of the king. 
you are still living a life that when you look in the mirror, you don't see a son or daughter of the Most High. You see your failures. You see your hurts. You see your past. You see your missed opportunities. You see your struggles. You see your circumstances. But you don't see the one thing that matters. That you're a son or daughter of the Most High. And it's my prayer that like last week, that you will see Christ in all of his greatness. But you won't stop there. You will see that because of his love, his holiness, everything that he is, his grace and his mercy, because your faith is in him, because he is Lord of your life, that not only changes how you see him, but it changes how you see yourself. Once again, not because of anything that you've done or not done, but because of who he is. And it's important to understand the distinction, but because if it's because it's who he is, then there's nothing you can ever do to tarnish it. You can sin. You can miss the mark. You can get things wrong. But it doesn't change who you 